So, with that in mind, let's pray for the Lord to speak. Father, I just thank you for every man and woman and child who's come here today. I pray for our kids at Student Ministries on the other end of the building who are, who are celebrating you and learning about you. I pray for every person in here. God, everybody comes in here with something going on in their life. It's a joy, something they're celebrating. It's a sorrow, something they're grieving. It's a pain, something they're trying to get answers to. It's a, a struggle that they're having with a, a sin or a temptation that maybe is owning them. And whatever it is, God, we all come here to to hear from you. So Father, would you speak through me now? Give me clarity, give me wisdom. May I have your words, God. Open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me in your Bible, if you have one. If you didn't bring one, it's okay. You can download a Bible app, or you can download our app in your app store and just follow along in the notes I have for you. But the reason I encourage you to bring a Bible, and if you don't have one, we have one provided there. Bring a Bible, bring a Bible. I want you to get familiar with where it is. And later, if you're like, what was it Matt was talking about? You can look it up for yourself and read some context. Life happens in context. So does the Bible. Read the stories before, the stories after. It'll all kind of help you. So we're going to find ourselves in John chapter three, one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. You're looking at me like they didn't pass the offering baskets. I'm backstage and Rhett said that they were going to be passed during the video. So apparently that was a miscommunication. So what we're going to do is go ahead and pass communion baskets. <laughs> and uh, while you guys are doing that, I'm going to go ahead and keep going because we don't have time. You know, it's like an hour long message that I'm going to talk fast and get done in 59 minutes. So you can do the math later. So go ahead, you guys, and pass the baskets. My apologies for whatever the miscommunication was. <laughs> Rhett can blame me later. So anyway, um, what we're going to do is look at the most famous chapter in the entire Bible, perhaps, because we have the, uh, the, 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 this pearl right here in John chapter 3, verse 16. But we're going to take a look, the lead into that, as we're in this series called The Pursuit of God. Now, while they're passing the baskets, I'll tell this story to buy you a second with your money and your offerings and the baskets and this. So, when I was a youth minister in Colorado, uh, this would have been roughly 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I was at a camp. So, my church had joined with another church, and we went to Wyoming to do a dude ranch camp which all the guys in the room were like, yeah, that sounds awesome. It was pretty cool. You're out there in the middle of the range. Literally the entire theme was, thing was themed like a ranch. So all of the dorms and buildings were like old, rustic, old westerns. Uh, they literally would do a rodeo in the midst of it. One year I got to wrestle a cow. It was a steer. It wasn't a bull, but it was close enough. It was like an 800-pound thing, and we had to wrestle it to the ground. I'd like to say I did my part. I did, but I almost got crushed. They would literally castrate a cow there with the students, have the students do it, never tell them it was coming. It was amazing. It was awesome. It was freak out these middle schoolers. All the boys were like, yes. All the girls were like, it was awesome. So while we're at this camp, one day, because we're joining with another church, the other church had one of their interns coordinate a game. Here's how the game went. Everybody, and I won't go through all the details, but everybody was given a section. They were given a little area. It was like roped off, and you were given a color of a balloon. The goal when they said go was to go to the other four or five teams and to take their balloons and bring them back into your camp. Their goal was to go to your team, take their balloons, take them back to their camp. When they said done, the game was over, and we would see who had the most balloons and see who won. And there was a way to put somebody in jail and to capture somebody, like a capture the flag kind of game, but I won't go into all that. So basically, Basically, they say go, and there's one or two teams that are stacked with all the athletic talent. I'd like to say it was my team, but it wasn't. So pretty much the game was over in less than five minutes because these two teams dominated everybody else. So the organizers of the game, young 20-somethings, never done this before, interns, they said, okay, okay we're going to redo this. We're going to redo this whole thing. So they redo the entire game right there in front of all the middle school students, starting to go crazy, and they come up with a new set of rules to try to even things out. It didn't work. 
So now we're two times into a game that's failed miserably, and we've got a choice, like let all the kids go, or let's try a third time. So all the powers that be are gathered together, having to talk about how to make the game actually work, because they're supposed to be keeping the kids busy for another hour, hour and 15 minutes. So I pull my kids aside, my student ministry kids, middle school kids, seventh and eighth grade, and I say, okay, guys, here's how it goes. I don't know what the rules are going to be this time, but I think what they're going to do is spread us out, because that's the problem. We're too close together. So what we're going to do this time is we're going to give away our balloons on purpose. And my kids looked at me like I had a second head. What do you mean we're going to give our We would lose. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. It'll be fun. Just go with me. I'm like, why would we do that? I'm like, because I'm trying to keep you interested. Just do it. And they really weren't quite sure, but I'm a pretty good salesman. And so after a while, I sold them on this idea. They say go, and all of a sudden, everybody starts running around. My team gathers, and instead of having people behind guarding your balloons and out front running and stealing other balloons, we all stood out front and said, here, take our balloons. Guess what happened? Nothing. All the other teams coming to steal our balloons ran in and tried to take our balloons, but they looked at us like, what's the catch? There's no catch. Take a balloon. So if I grab that balloon, what are you going to do to me? I'm going to give you the balloon. So literally, I started trying to throw the balloons to them. You ever tried that? (laughs) No, seriously. I'll sit on the ground. I'll back up. You're too close. Okay, I'll back way up. Take the balloons. We are begging people. Now, what happened is in the middle of doing this, it dawned on me that this was like a picture of the gospel. Like, no, seriously. Take our balloons. They're not important. Just take the balloon. And what happened is other kids on other teams started joining us. We started trying to give away our balloons. Really frustrated the coordinators of the games. But I'm like, you guys failed twice, all right? You lost your chance. What we started doing, though, was realizing that the game wasn't about getting. The game was about giving. And what we did is we actually created a little gospel sermonette in the midst of the game. My team, they started taking my team in the way that you could and arresting them and taking them off to jail. And I said, don't worry about it. Just go with them. What? Who does that? So my team would get captured, just go off to jail. Nobody would run out to save them. They'd just stay in jail. It was amazing. You're like, why is this amazing? Well, here's why. Because part of what I just described to you is is a game that has failed because the game is played by the typical rules of this world. Now, the way the rules of the world work are get as much as you can, be as important as you can, as powerful as you can, have as much influence as you possibly can, and you win. Now, Jesus is about to have a conversation with a guy like that, and his name is Nicodemus. Now, history tells us, there's a couple historical writings where Nicodemus shows up outside the Bible, and what we learn is Nicodemus is the fourth wealthiest family, the fourth wealthiest dude in the city of Jerusalem at that time. He's big and prominent and powerful. We're told that he has some students, so he probably has some sort of classroom because he's a religious teacher. He's a well-known rabbi. Just to give you an idea of how important and prominent his family is, before Rome ransacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, his son negotiated terms of peace with the government of Rome. That's how important and prominent this guy is. And we find ourselves in John chapter 3 now, and he's come to Jesus at night. Take a look at this conversation. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, just camp out there before we keep going. 
There's a few reasons why he might have come to Jesus at night. There are four primary reasons, possibly a fifth. I'll go through them quickly because I think they're all true and the last two are the most true. So rabbis in that day would often gather together as the sun was setting, the kind of the work of the day was done and you know everybody's winding down and they would often have theological discourse in the evening. Uh, this is probably a little later than that, but that could be one possible explanation. Another possible explanation is Jesus, we're told through the gospels, is constantly surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. And the only time you're going to get one-on-one time with this guy is if you go to him at night. But it brings up a good question, which leads to number three. Nicodemus, why are you coming to him at night? Why are you just not bringing up a question? We often see in the gospels, people are raising their hand and going, hey, Jesus, what about this? What do I do with that? And help me with this. A guy as famous and as prominent and as well-known as Nicodemus could easily have gotten FaceTime with Jesus we often see Pharisees asking questions with Jesus. It leads us to the third reason. Nicodemus is possibly coming at night because he's afraid to be seen with Jesus during the day. Now, at one point in the conversation, Nicodemus says a we, and it brings you to the idea he may be representing somebody here, perhaps the Sanhedrin, perhaps the Sadducees, or maybe his students that he teaches. One of those historical writings, it's not the Bible, so I can't affirm that it's true, tells us that Nicodemus was a disciple of Jesus. And if you read all of John, you actually see his progression. You see him here, then you, I believe you see him in chapter 9 or 10, I can't remember. He's actually arguing for Jesus to be given um, a fair trial and be given the opportunity to speak. And then we see him later in the end, he actually brings spices for Jesus' body to be wrapped in after he's died on the cross. What we kind of see is this progression of a man who just isn't sure. He can look at Jesus, and he's a religious teacher. He's well acquainted with the Old Testament. He knows what the Messiah ought to look like, but he just isn't sure. But he sees Jesus make the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, and he can't argue with what he's seen. And so he's coming to Jesus just to say, like, help me out here. I see these miracles. I know you're something special. Clearly God has sent you because nobody else can do these things, but I don't get what you're saying. Now, just a little context for those of you who are visiting. Jesus often spoke in parables, stories that may seem a little bit confusing on the surface level, and that's intentional. We're actually told in Isaiah that he would do that. He did that for a few reasons. Number one, so that if you wanted to know him, you would have to seek him. You would actually have to pursue him. You would actually have to look into him, consider it, ponder it, think about it, chew on it, wrestle with him. Who is he? What does he mean? What do I do with this? That way, those who wanted to see could see. Look at verse 4. 3. I can't count. Verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you've come to me at night. Maybe you're a little afraid being found out. But the reality is, Nicodemus, you're looking at miracles, but you're missing the real thing. You're looking at the physical, but you're missing the spiritual. John already told us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the one by whom God created all things. So what we see in Jesus is the creator has come to restore creation. In other words, creation is out of whack because of sin. And the creator, rather than destroying and starting over, the creator has showed up to redeem and restore that which is broken. But Nicodemus can't get it. He's got his head wrapped in the physical world. Why? Because he's a rabbi. That leads us to the fourth reason, maybe, that we're told that Nicodemus came at night. 
See, go read the book of John sometime if you're fascinated, and just pay attention to how often contrast comes up, light and dark especially. John uses these concepts even in 1 John and in Revelation. In his writings, light and dark is a really big deal. It's more likely than not all of these things are true, but especially this last one, because Jesus, or John, sorry, is trying to paint a picture about the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. He's trying to paint a picture for you that Nicodemus is living in darkness, but the lightness is shining through, and if he will just open his eyes and see and step into the light, he will walk in a right relationship with God. That's exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 1. But Nicodemus can't see. We'll find out at the end of the text why Nicodemus can't see. But he's having a hard time wrapping his head around Jesus. Now, here's my theory. I think we, sitting here today, can often relate with Nicodemus. Here's why. Many of you are sitting here today. You've never taken the step forward of giving your life to Christ. You've never actually taken the step of going all in and realizing what God is trying to do is build an upside-down kingdom, one that's not about getting and becoming prominent and powerful, but one that's about giving away and becoming like your heavenly Father. It doesn't make sense as long as you have an earthly perspective about the world. But you're afraid. You're afraid others will know. You're afraid of what others might think. You're afraid of what others might say. You're desperately afraid to be found out, exposed, caught. Or if you do come forward, what is going to happen to all these other people? What does God have in store for me? And so maybe like Nicodemus, you're sitting here and have sat here weeks or listening online for weeks. And you can relate with all that's going on in Nicodemus' heart. Do you know how much he stands to lose if he goes in with this Jesus guy? All of his wealth and prominence and power and respect theoretically would be out the door because in the circles he runs in, nobody's following this guy. Nicodemus appears to be the first. We know from the book of Acts, not the last, but probably the first. Take a look. Verse 4. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Nicodemus' mom said, please tell me you're not serious, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus replied, verse 5, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, verse 9, how are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Now, some of you may be going, huh? Maybe you feel like Nicodemus. Now, next week on part two, I will dig in deeper to the whole concept of water and spirit. I'm not getting to that point yet. We will talk intensely about what is baptism and why do we do baptism and what is the Holy Spirit. As much as I can in a 40, 45-minute message, things that people cover in hours or write entire books on, I'm going to boil it down and, and probably frustrate a lot of people by answering some questions and not everyone. But this is why Jesus spoke a parable, so you can seek him and not me. But I want to lay this foundation today that we're going to stand on. Nicodemus doesn't understand the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's wrapped up in an earthly kingdom. Who in the world plays the game that way? Okay, Jesus, I want to follow you, but just speak clearly. What are you saying? Nicodemus, you can't understand what I'm saying. 
Because I'm speaking about heavenly things, and you have an earthly mind. That's what he's saying. He even rebukes him in the next couple verses that we're not going to look at. He rebukes him and says, you're a teacher of Israel. You know the word of God better than anybody, and yet you don't even understand this thing? Nicodemus, you've been born into the flesh. You have lived by the flesh. You have been bitten by the flesh, and yet you're struggling to get this because you need a new birth, a new creation, a new beginning. Do one, two, skip a few here. Jump down with me to verse 13. Jesus says this, No one has ever gone to heaven and returned But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. See, part of what's going on here is Nicodemus is really struggling. He's all in his head. This doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It just seems so backwards from the way I think it ought to be. And Jesus basically narrows it down to this one thing. Nicodemus, who are you going to trust? And Jesus basically just says, there's only one person you should trust, the Son of Man. Now, we know from uh, the New Testament, this is a title Jesus used for himself. So he's saying, look, I'm the only one you can trust. And the reason you should only trust me is because I'm the only one who's been up there and I came down to tell you about up there. You listen to any earthly teacher, any earthly teacher, and all they can tell you is about their understanding and their perspective of this world. There's a guy I've recently met. I've been selling him some baseball cards. Good guy. We've been just kind of going to lunch. I sell him cards. We talk. And he actually um, went to Kingsway Christian School at one point and got in some trouble and was removed from the school. This has been decades ago, long, long, long time ago. And um, he got in some trouble in his family. And, and, and anyway, then he just got in trouble in life. And he, he went away and basically became a professional gambler and, and ended up getting caught up in meth and then later in prison. And, and through all of this, he said, he said in his own words, I've literally searched every religion there is. While I was in prison, I read about everything. I read about just about every version of Christianity there is and Kabbalah and Hinduism and Buddhism. He goes, the only one I stayed away from was Scientology because that stuff's just weird. And uh, <laughs> that's the only one that's weird. And now today he's a Mormon. And I, we, we, we text all the time. We go to lunch as much as we can. And I'm pretty sure, because I just started getting Mormon emails out of nowhere, I'm pretty sure he's trying to convert me. (laughs) But I know this. The place that I have to start with him is founded in this very verse. Who am I going to trust? As I'm trying to understand who God is and what he wants for the world and what he wants to do with me, Jesus lays out for Nicodemus, Nicodemus, there's only one place you can find truth. Now, I know truth in our culture today is like a moving target. You know, you have your truth and I have my truth. But guys, just realize this. By definition, that's not possible. There can't be two different versions of truth or one of them isn't true. Now, what you could say is, this has worked for me, that has worked for you, I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing. And look, that, that might not be a false statement because you're defining work in the same way Nicodemus defined work. I'm successful, I have money, I'm powerful, I'm famous, I'm generally happy. So you say out of my business and I'll say out of your business. And who could argue with Nicodemus? I mean, Most of Israel, except for maybe three other guys, since he's the fourth richest, would love his life. But Jesus is going deeper with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you don't need earthly success. You don't need more balloons, Nicodemus. You need to figure out what's going on in heaven. 
And the only place you're going to figure that out, Jesus is saying, is in me. Which is an extremely arrogant, pompous statement. If it's anything other than true, don't miss that last thing I said. This statement right here is flat arrogant and pompous and conceited unless it is true. Now, if it's true that the only one who can help you understand who God is and how to get back there is Jesus, then this isn't arrogant and pompous. Do you understand the difference? It's just simply true. Now, part of the reason truth has become flipped in our culture is because, and I'm just one of the many, many, many reasons, is partly because of like uh, political debates today where everybody is looking at a data point or a stat and talking about what truth is from their angle. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the only one who's ever seen heaven. I'm the only one who knows God. I'm the only one who's been there, and I came down here to tell you about it. So Nicodemus, are you going to give up your preconceived notions of what good and right and just are? And trust me, are you going to keep doing this on your own? And again, Nicodemus had a journey. But what I want you to get today really is actually the next verse, the next two verses. Because this is where it becomes crystal clear what Jesus means to Nicodemus when he says, I am the only one who could show you heaven. Look at these next two verses. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, many of you, like in the parable, sit there and go, huh? Huh? We're going to put a bronze snake on a pole? I'm so confused. Well, Nicodemus would not have been confused. This would have been clear as day to Nicodemus because Jesus is referring back to a story from Israel's past. Remember, Nicodemus is a religious teacher. Let's go ahead and look at that story. Turn with me in the book of Numbers. If you don't know where this is, guess where it'll be? On the screen or in your app. Okay, Numbers chapter 21. So for those of you who are familiar with your Bible, you know how to find this. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Now, in context, every story has to be understood in context. And I'm looking at the clock going, oh, I have 13 minutes. Got to talk faster. Okay. In context, what has happened is this. God has shown up and rescued Israel as slaves in Egypt. He's been leading them by miracle. Literally, these 10 plagues in, in, in Egypt were miracles. He took them to the Red Sea, split the Red Sea, walked across dry land, another miracle. He leads them literally with a fire at night and a cloud by day. Did I do that backwards? No, I think I did that right. Miracle. At one point, they're crying out because they're thirsty. And God literally brings water from a rock. It's the picture of Jesus. Moses goes up on a mountain and meets with God on behalf of the people. And miraculous things happen. But all in this journey, God is taking Israel and he's making something new out of them. The problem is Israel is attached to their idols from Egypt. We're actually told this in the scriptures. They don't want to let go of the false comforts and the demons of the past that they used to worship and turn to. And God knows he's the only source of life. Just like Jesus is arrogant enough to say he's the only one who's been to heaven and come down to tell us about it, God is often saying, I'm the only one who loves you. I'm the only one who will provide for you. When the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years and were hungry, God sent manna, this miracle bread from heaven. Manna literally means what is it? They don't even know what it is, but it literally came down from heaven and they would eat it. But could you imagine eating the same thing every meal, every day? The Israelites had to. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, believer, just know this, part of what God is doing is showing them you don't need all the things you think you need. 
What you really need is to trust me. So God sends the Israelites into the promised land and says, I want you to go take out the Canaanites, destroy them all. And so they decide to send in some spies. And the spies go in and two of them come back. Joshua and Caleb are like, oh, we got this. God is going to give us the promised land. And the rest of the spies come back and they're like, they look really big and strong. We can't go in there. So God says to the Israelites, you're not ready for the promised land. You're not ready. Your hearts don't trust me yet. So I need to do a work in you to get you to the place where you absolutely trust me. So they do. They wander around in the desert. And we find ourselves in Numbers 21. They're wandering around this desert, and now they're in Canaan at one point, and they, are, they have cried out to God. In the verses right before what I'm about to read you, they've cried out to God, give us freedom, help us to defeat these enemies, and God gave them a victory, a miraculous victory. And then we find ourselves in Numbers 21, verse 4. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. Now, notice they're walking right past the Red Sea. This is a visual reminder of God's power. Remember, he divided this thing. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in this wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here and there's nothing to drink. And we hate this horrible manna. Anybody have kids? <laughs> Comedian Tim Hawkins has this funny little video he does about taking his kids to Six Flags, spends a half a grand on his kids, and they get in the car, and he hears one of his kids crying in the backseat, and he's like, hey, honey, what's wrong? And this kid says, whatever, Johnny, his friend, he, his, kids, his parents took him to Disney World, and they spent five days there, and all we did is go to Six Flags. Tim says, I just, that was it. I was done. Jesus, take the wheel. I'm letting go. Whatever happens next is on you, Lord. Every parent in the room understands this, right? What are you, what are you complaining about? I don't want spaghetti. Eat. Now, listen, you need to understand this is deeper than I don't like the food. God had just miraculously answered their prayers. God has provided for them, protected for them, miracle after miracle after miracle. But they still don't trust him. They still don't love him. They still remember the past as if it was this beautiful place. Their slavery in Egypt as if it was a good thing. They look back on those days and could recall, oh, remember we were in Egypt. I forget the pain and the backbreaking and all the suffering. Oh, but I remember we ate some, some beef there. I remember the, the, this we ate there. And now they're complaining against God and Moses. Take a look at what God does. Verse 6, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Now, when you were in Sunday school growing up, if you grew up in Sunday school, you got a verse like that, and you were terrified of God. You went, do not mess with this God. And there is a point where that's probably true, that you should be afraid of the power of the Lord, but you need to read the entire story of God to get the context of God. God is one to be afraid of, but then when you understand him, you aren't afraid of him anymore. You draw near to him. So look at what happens next, verse 7. When the people came to Moses and cried out, then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. 
This verse right here is an entire sermon I don't have time to go into, but the very short version of this is God in his wrath judged the people for their sins, so he sent snakes to bite them. They were suffering sick, and some even died. They repented. They returned back to the Lord, said, free us, help us, and then Moses prayed for the people. If you go read Moses' life and Jesus' life, you see that they literally do this. Moses is a broken version of Jesus because he's human and sinful and does evil things, but his birth story looks like Jesus' birth story. Story. His miracle story, his prophecy story looks like Jesus' prophecy story. He goes up on a mountain to meet with God. Jesus goes up in the transfiguration to meet with God. And it goes over and over and over again. And one of the reasons is Moses is what we call a type. He's pointing us forward. When you look at Moses, you go, he's like Jesus, but not as good. Moses prays. He goes before the people to God. This is exactly what Jesus does for you. So we're told in Hebrews that we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's because Jesus is your intermediary. He's your intercessor. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one, and one God and man. And there's one man who bridges the gap between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who prays on your behalf when you sin and carries you before the Father and says, Father, this one is mine. Receive their repentance. But look at what happens next. Verse 8. Then the Lord told him, that's Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Remember, this is exactly what Jesus just told Nicodemus. Now, Jesus didn't say this to the woman at the well. The woman at the well, a woman caught in adultery, a woman stuck in divorce after divorce after divorce. He looked at her and said, you need to drink living water. This is a different message. This is a message for a rabbinic teacher, a guy who's well acquainted with the Old Testament. He takes him back and he says, I'm that snake. Well, that's just weird. Anybody else think that's weird? What in the world could it mean that Jesus is like a snake on a pole? Okay, I, I'm going to do this quickly. But boy, I want to do a lot on this. So if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, in the garden we find Adam and Eve, and God has told them, here's a tree, you can eat of any tree in this garden, but ignore that one in the middle. Don't touch the fruit of that tree. And a snake, a serpent, comes down, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and they don't listen to God. He tells them, you don't need God, God's trying to keep something from you. So they eat the fruit. And God comes down, and he says, you're now going to die as a result of not trusting me. You've listened to the snake. You've been bitten by the snake. It's a metaphor. And you're now going to die because now you're going to find pain and enmity in your marriage. You're going to find pain in your work, at your toil. Women, you're going to find pain as you give childbirth. It's, life is going to be hard and toilsome because you have been bitten by the snake. Let's follow the snake motif through scripture quickly, and I wish I could go deeper in this. But in the book of Job, we find Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. He goes up to heaven. And apparently the heavenly court has gathered before God and he's having a, they're having a conversation, just giving report on what's going on and their duties. And Satan shows up and God says, hey, what are you doing here? And Satan says, well, I've been wandering the earth, searching the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, oh yeah, I've considered him, but the only reason he worships you is because you've blessed him. He's richer than anybody else on the earth. If you take away all his blessings, he will curse you to your face. God says, no, he won't. I'll let you do this. I'll let you do this. However... <clears throat> do not touch the man. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. So Satan goes down and fire falls down from the sky, burns up all of his animals. And that day, there would have been like his entire job, his house, his cars. Then a great wind comes and destroys the house and the house collapses and crushes his kids. His kids are all dead. We find Job sitting, weeping as his servants are coming in, giving a report. And he cries out to God. Instead of blaming God, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. No, praise the name of the Lord. The heavenly court gathers again and Satan shows back up and God says, how'd it work out for you? And Satan says, no, no, no. See, every human being that lives on the face of the earth is selfish. You let me hurt Job, not, not take away his stuff. You let me hurt Job. He'll curse you to your face. God says, no, he won't. You could go, but you cannot kill him. And the next thing that happens is Job is stricken from head to toe with painful boils. And at the end of chapter 2, we find Job taking shards of pottery, digging in his boils. And it says he sits among the ashes, which can mean a few things. Number one, he's sitting among the ruin of everything he's lost. Or even possibly, he's actually sticking the ashes in his boils, whatever it would mean. It may be some medicinal purposes. And where it gets really foul is this word for ashes can actually be translated in the Hebrew as dung or manure. And we see this man covered in pain and shame beyond his control. Chapter 1, we're told that Job is a good man, upright in all his ways. How dare you do this, God? What has this man ever done to deserve this? Maybe Nicodemus wondered the same thing. But Job's wife comes along, and you, you can't really blame her. I mean, she just lost her kids and everything she owns. But she looks at Job and says, just curse God and die already. Everybody needs a woman like that, let me tell you. <laughs> and God says, no. Can we receive only blessing from the Lord and not pain as well? The Lord has the right to do what he wants. But check what happens next in the story of Job. So Job's three friends come to comfort him and console him, and they sit around a fire, him covered in painful sores from head to toe, grieving over his great loss. He's gone from having everything, a blessed life, to having nothing. He's struggling here. And they give him the worst advice. In fact, their advice is so bad that God rebukes them at the end of the story for what they say to Job. You ought to read Job sometime and find out what not to say when somebody's struggling. One time, a man in my last church, his house burnt down. <clears throat> I'm an idiot, okay? Two weeks before this, we had just signed up for a new insurance policy, and I joked with my wife, man, if our house ever burns down, we're going to be better off than if we didn't have the insurance policy. It's great. We'll just go buy all new stuff. I never set my house on fire. Anybody listening? So when this, two weeks later, I'm talking to this man in my church, and he and his wife were kind of crying because of all they lost. And I was like, this is great. You get to go start over. My wife looked at me and goes, are you an idiot? <laughs> when his wife walked away crying, and he graciously forgave me for being an idiot, I felt like Job's friends. So what happens? Now get this. I'm going somewhere. Read chapter 40 and 41 of Job sometime. At the end, God brings out to Job. He basically shows up finally because Job progresses from, I'm going to defend the honor of the Lord, to, I got some questions for you, God. What are you doing? What are you up to? And how dare you? What have I ever done to deserve this? That's basically where it goes. So he doesn't accuse God, but he gets right up to the line. And God finally shows up in chapter 38. He says, Job, you've been asking me some questions. Now I got some questions for you. 
In chapter 38, it's fascinating to me that God shows up in a whirlwind to speak to Job. How did Job lose his kids? God shows up in the most painful way in Job's life to connect with his pain and say, now, Job, I'm still good. You could trust me, but let's remind you who I am. So then God goes through this litany of, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and I separated the dark and the light and I put the stars in their place and I hold back the storehouses of snow? Job, where are you when the lion is in the field and it's hungry and I provided food? Job, where were you? And he just goes after things after thing after thing and Job finally realizes I've spoken in a place I shouldn't have spoken I have no idea how big and powerful you are all the things you were coordinating or what you were doing in the world but catch this in chapter 41 it leads in from 40 you got to read both God looks at Job and he says Job I want you to look at the Leviathan now Leviathan is mind-boggling to all of us those who read the Bible literally will tell you it's probably a dinosaur but I've never seen a dinosaur that looks like this Go read about how big it is with its massive tail and its scales. Go read about the red eyes and the fire shooting from its mouth. You know what it sounds like? A dragon. Well, that's fascinating. Isn't a dragon just a big serpent? A big snake? Because then we fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, chapter 13. We find that the ancient serpent, the dragon, Satan, that's literally what it says, has been kicked out of heaven. Why? Because Jesus has come, and on the cross, he's been raised up, and he has victory over the enemy. The enemy has lost the battle, and Satan has been kicked down to earth. He can no longer go into the heavenly courthouse and accuse you of the things that you've done. He's not welcome there anymore. He's here, and he's livid, and he's ticked, and he's biting everyone he can to destroy your marriage destroy your community, to destroy this creation. Because he hates you. How then does lifting up a bronze snake in Numbers 21 have to do with Jesus saying to Nicodemus in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up? Let me see if I could connect a dot for you. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anybody who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In the same way that in Numbers 21, everybody was bit by the snake, you and I have been bit by the snake. Satan has destroyed us in ways that we don't even understand yet. 
We find comfort and peace and pleasure and joy and provision and things that are not of God. They're not from God. And you don't even realize the hold that the serpent has on you. And God has come to separate that thing from you, to strip it from your life, to take it away from you. Because the snake bite will always lead to death. But what in the Old Testament happened was they made a bronze snake and lifted it up. And Jesus says, I'm like that bronze snake. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became a snake on a tree lifted up. He'd never sinned, but on the cross, he took all of our sin. And in the same way as in Numbers 21, all who want to be set free from the bite of the serpent. Do you know what you have to do? Just look upon the cross. Think about this for a minute. I've always pictured um, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never thought I'd refer to movies from my childhood as old movies, but... Do you remember that scene, if you've seen it, where Indiana falls into the pit and there's asps everywhere, those snakes? And he's terrified. Why does it have to be snakes? And then he looks up at one point and there's a, like a cobra, a viper, something like right there in his face. Now think about this for a minute. This is kind of how I picture this. Guys, we're not talking like a couple snakes sneaking around and biting everybody. We're talking like snakes everywhere. I mean, like this is like every woman going, ah, get it. But your husband's sick in bed and dying. People are just stomping everywhere. They're sneaking up. They're all over. They can't walk anywhere. So Moses makes a bronze snake and he lifts it up. And now you have a choice. Are you going to focus on the snakes biting at your feet? Because doesn't that make sense? To go, ha, ah, no, I can't, I can't look at the snake. I got to dodge this thing. I got to get away from that thing. Or are you going to stop for a second and go, even if this thing bites me, I'm going to live if I'll just lift up my eyes and look at the snake that's been lifted up. And we're told that everybody who looked at the bronze snake was healed. But we're so distracted by the bite that we stay focused down below. God looks at Nicodemus and says, you don't understand heavenly things because you got your eyes focused on earthly things, Nicodemus. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Because when I'm lifted up, anybody who looks at me will be saved. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He will come a second time for judgment. But right now, we live in the days of grace, where salvation is free for anybody who will lift their eyes from earth and gaze upon the cross. And you don't have to understand it all. Maybe like Nicodemus, it takes some more time and processing and seeking and looking and following and listening. But lift your eyes. 
But I'll just throw this out there for some of you who are like, what do I do next? I'm going to make it as clear as I know how to make it. But I want you to get this. Please get this, okay? The reason so many of you are afraid to come to the cross is the same reason that I was. Sometimes still am. It's these next things that Jesus says. Verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Nicodemus, you're the fourth wealthiest man in all of Jerusalem. Nicodemus, you're a religious teacher. Everybody thinks you've got it all together. You've got everybody fooled, Nicodemus except God because he sees and he knows just how far you really are from him. Nicodemus, the reason you're coming to me at night is because you're afraid that your sins will be exposed. So what's God saying to Nicodemus? Look upon the cross, Nicodemus. Realize how much I love you, Nicodemus. Trust me, Nicodemus. David writes a psalm in the Old Testament and he uses his phrase, do not let me be put to shame for trusting in you. What a powerful phrase. It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, let go of the serpents biting your heels. Let go of the hold that this world has on you. Trust me, I will not put you to shame. But you've got to look to me. You've got to trust me and I will come through. Listen, I don't know where you are today, but if you've never taken the first step of surrender, today is your day. Next week, we're gonna do a whole sermon on baptism, going all in, following through with Jesus. But man, before anybody gets wet, we all have to start at faith. In fact, without faith, you're just taking a bath. Maybe today is the day where you say, I don't have all the answers, but I have enough answers to know that Jesus is my only hope. Maybe something today, you feel the Spirit tugging at you. You're just afraid. I'm just challenging you. I'm begging you. Don't be like Nicodemus at this moment. Trust that your Heavenly Father will deal with you kindly. And if you aren't sure, then look at His Son because He paid the wrath of God for you. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to pray. And I'm asking you to come right now, okay? So here's what I'm going to do, okay? Ready? Just stand up for a second. Go ahead and put your Bibles, your books, whatever you got down, iPhones, iPads. Pray, and we're going to sing. And if today you hear God's voice, if today you hear him saying, come to God, then do it today. Don't go home and talk about it with somebody else. Don't wait. Maybe you have somebody with you. Don't be afraid of what they're going to think. Maybe you're a child. Grab your parents. Bring them with you. But today is the day, okay? So go to my left. You're right under the screen. We've got some people down there. Chris is down there going, I'm ready. Bring them on. There's 100 people. We'll be ready. We'll make it happen. Look, we'll make this take as long as it takes. We'll go into the next service if we have to. But if today's your day, do not wait. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray right now, this is a spirit thing. It's a heaven thing. It can't be a flesh thing. God, I can't make anybody. I'm not smart enough to 
talk anybody into this, but your spirit right now is moving and convicting and stirring. Right now, there are Christians stuck in sin who need to repent, walk into the light, and let go of the bite of the serpent. Right now, God, there are unbelievers in this room who've never stepped forward, never taken that first step, never asked you to be their Lord and their Savior. God, right now, may they get rid of all the fears. What's everybody else gonna think? What's gonna happen next? How will God handle this? And God, would you just plant deep in their heart a seed of faith that they would trust you and find you trustworthy? And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.